We hear now from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8, reading from verse 28 and into chapter 9. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow's blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. May God grant that more light and truth break forth from his word. The two miracles that we're thinking about tonight show that Jesus has the power over all things and authority to forgive sins. After calming the storm, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a land that was the land of the Gentiles, it was known as. And Jesus comes across two men with demons who recognize his ultimate authority, but they want him to leave them alone. Jesus confronts the two men, which in itself is interesting, as their community will have left them to it. They lived left them alone because of their violent nature. We're told that these men who dwelt among the dead, living in cave-like tombs, were so violent that nobody could pass that way. But Jesus went to them and demonstrated his power over the forces of evil. Jesus' conversation was with the demons, not the men. And the men said, "'What do you want with us, son of God?' Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And the demons' questions are quite revealing. They show that they have knowledge of who Jesus really is. 
they know that he's got the power over them. He's got the power to, to do what he will do. And they identify Jesus as the Son of God. They know who he is just by seeing him. And some distance from them, there's a herd of pigs that were feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And as we know, he said to them, go. So they came out, and that's better. I can hear that better now. I was thinking I was shouting a little bit, but that's cool. And uh, went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake, and they all died. Now, the interesting thing there is that all Jesus had to do was say the word go, one word, and that got rid of the demons that had possessed these men for years. And that was it, job done. That shows how powerful Jesus was. But the demons said, well, when they said, if you drive us out, that doesn't mean that they're not sure if Jesus would drive them out or not. He knows, they know that he will. It simply means, since you're going to drive us out, please send us into the pigs. Now, we don't really know why they did that, and we don't really know why Jesus let them do that. But we do know that these pigs will have ultimately been destroyed anyway. And the souls of these two men were worth more than the massive herd of pigs. And then we have the people's response to all this. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's one of the weirdest endings to a miracle that I've heard of. Not a thanks very much, or, you know, that's so much better now or no praises to God, or anything like that, but a, can you go, please? Other people have been drawn to Jesus because of his miracles, but here they begged him to leave. They didn't show him the respect that even the demons had shown him. But I suppose that to them, Jesus was an unwanted intrusion. He unsettled them. He complicated things. It didn't seem to matter that the men had been delivered from demon possession, not at all. The fact is simply that Jesus had disrupted them and lost them a large herd of pigs in the process. They wanted him gone. Someone put it this way, they cared more about the pigs than the person, and that seems to be true. They didn't want to deal with God or talk about God or face the reality of God in human form in Jesus. They needed a bit of perspective on this. And I'd love to know what happened with those people. Whether later on, years down the line, they realised who they'd seen and what opportunity they'd missed. But whatever the case, I'm pretty sure that they were missing out. And it's the same with this event as it is with the next one we're going to consider. That so often we forget that our realities are so different to God's. Their reality was that they'd lost a herd of pigs and that was a big thing. But sometimes we see things that are so very troublesome to us. But to God, he can deal with it. God is able to do all things. And that's something that we need to remind ourselves of from time to time. God can change our realities. He has the power over all things. And exercising some demons from two men was an incredible display of power. As was what happened next the healing of a paralysed man, such that he instantaneously stood up, picked up his bed, and and went, walked with it. I'm sure this is a story that we remember from Sunday school days, 
something that we know off by heart. And I want to look very briefly at the different people who we meet in that story. Something to start with, um, I think it's important to first of all look at the friends of the paralysed man. Some accounts of this story say that there were four men. This one doesn't tell us. But whatever the case, although the story isn't about them, if you think about it without them, the story might not have happened quite as it did. If they'd not bothered to take their friend to see Jesus, then who would, when, would they, when would his friend have seen them? When would he have got to meet Jesus otherwise? Whether they managed to walk straight up to Jesus or whether they'd struggled, as other versions suggest, Having seen the faith of these friends, Jesus forgave and healed the man who was paralysed. And as we know, he got up, took his mat and went home. And all the people were amazed and began to glorify God. And that's a bit more of a usual response to witnessing a miracle than the guys who witnessed the demon uh, possession. People never witnessed a healing so miraculous. And the friends were a key part in the whole thing. They knew the difference Jesus could make to their friend and they made sure that they got him to see Jesus. And the simple question is, and maybe it is a bit simple, but do we care about our friends so much that we'll try our best to introduce them to Jesus? So that's the first group of people, his friends. They took him to see Jesus because they knew that Jesus could make a difference. And the second person in the story is a paralysed man himself. He will have been over the moon, I'm sure. He met with Jesus and his whole life changed there and then. One of the powerful things in this passage is that Jesus goes through the healing process of saying, your, hint, your sins are forgiven. And then afterwards he says, rise up, take your mat and go home. What's powerful in that is that he doesn't just say, get up and go. He says, take him out and go home, he's very specific about what he tells him to do. In other words, if he was just to get up and walk about, people were to see him, they'd think he'd always been able to walk, unless they knew him, of course. But by telling him to carry his mat and to go home, he will have been passing people that he knew. People will have wondered why he was carrying his mat. People might have asked him, what has happened, what has changed, there's something different. People who knew him would be able to see the difference. They'd be able to see the difference that Jesus made in his life. And the simple challenge for us with that is that when we meet with Jesus and he works within him, within us even, and we become more the people that he wants us to be, then those around us should be able to see the difference that Jesus makes to us. They should be able to see through our lives and the way we live that Jesus has changed us and that we are continuing to grow more and more like him. We, not, we might not be physically in need right now, but there are loads of ways that we're a bit like that paralysed man. Maybe we're paralysed by the ruts we get stuck in or the bad habits that we've developed. Maybe we're more like the man than we care to imagine. And maybe like him, we need Jesus to come and free us forgive us and heal us. So maybe you identify with the paralysed man. But let me tell you a story of an elderly woman who lived in a big house on her own. So for a bit of company and for some income, she opened a 
uh, she rented rooms out uh, to students in the area. She was a bit unrealistic with her expectations. And let me tell you why. She had a vase, a very special vase, a Steuben vase in particular. Now, for those of us uncultured people who don't know the significance of a Steuben vase, if I'm saying it right, of course, a Steuben vase is made from a New York-based company that make very, very expensive crystal stuff. Now, just so I knew what I was on about, I had a quick look on the website, and unfortunately they have closed, but when they were selling things, vases, just a vase, would go for about $5,000 or something silly. So that is a serious piece of glass. Anyway, in her dining room, standing alone in a space specifically reserved for that, stood this crystal vase of Steuben glass. It was the most beautiful vase that you had ever seen. It would have to be for that price, wouldn't it? It had a deep centre and it flared out to a wide, flat rim and she loved that vase. Well, one day the lady was out of town for a week and one of the students was giving it a wash, as you do, and accidentally bashed it on the side of a sink. A one-inch triangle of glass broke from it and it split right down to the base. The student who did it could do nothing but cry, as you could imagine. Then the landlady returned, found her beloved vase where it had been left, and found herself, understandably, a little bit broken as well. She wasn't angry so much as bereaved, and for days which turned into weeks, she left it lying there in state on the kitchen counter. Unable to bring herself to do the inevitable, And she kept saying things like, maybe they can fix it somehow. Or maybe there'll be a way of getting it to glue back together or something. But people would tell her, you can't fix broken crystal. She knew that was true. She was being unrealistic. And it was beginning to be a little bit of an embarrassing problem. She was paralysed by love for it, no doubt. But paralysed nonetheless. Unable to face what everyone knew she had to face, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, sand to Steuben sand. But one day she said to the students, who were still remarkably living with her, I think I'm going to call up Steuben and see if they might be able to fix it. They tried to keep from rolling their eyes, but undaunted by their response, she called them and said, I love this vase, and I know it's crazy and all, but I wondered if you might have some suggestion as to what I might do. We're so sorry for your loss, Steuben said. But the vase you're describing is no longer in production. But what they said next took the student's breath away. What they said was this. If you'll bring the broken vase up to our store, our artists will fashion a replacement at our expense. We'll copy it and replace it at no charge. Steuben would bear the high cost of what they themselves had broken. You see, our realities are so small, yours and mine. Our realities are you can't fix broken crystal. Or why would Jesus be interested in me when I'm just one of billions of people? Or you can't forgive someone's sins unless they've sinned specifically against you. And these realities are sort of true. True but too small. You see, in the case of this vase, it was no ordinary vase. This was a Steuben The students in the story had failed in reality to consider the source 
the maker of this vase. The young man on his mat was not just a paralytic to be dismissed by doctors or whoever, but someone's friend, someone's son, a Steuben handcrafted from sand by God. So many paralyzed people, paralyzed by reality so deadly because they're partly true. So often we fail in reality to consider the source, our maker, the creator of all things. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the delusions of this landlady for her beloved vase. I'd sooner have the illusions of the paralytic's friends. Give me the blasphemies of Jesus any day over my limited realities. You've got to wonder just who the paralyzed in this story are. You see, Jesus' reality of the situation is so different to ours. The possibilities were far more unrealistic if we judge them by our expectations. But we shouldn't. Because Jesus is bigger than our limitations. He is far more capable than anything that we can ever get our minds around. Because he is God. And that's what he's essentially showing people through this healing miracle. Jesus himself was never one to be constrained by apparent reality. And whatever the reason, what happened next was the craziest thing of all. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus, of course, is the next person that we're going to consider. He was saying through his actions that he too could forgive sins. He too was God, God in human form. Now try to imagine what's going on with the crowd when those words are spoken. No pressure or anything, but they'll have been waiting to see what will happen. If the man was to continue to lay there and didn't get up and didn't go, then the scribes and the religious officials would be loving it and could laugh off the whole Jesus phenomenon. But if the man got up, took his mat and walked out the door, then something extraordinary had just occurred because God had showed up in their town. Things could never be the same again. And while the crowd were in awe and they praised God for what they'd seen, you see, Jesus was showing them that he was indeed God. The primary person in the story for today is Jesus who has the power to forgive sins just as God had the power to forgive sins. So often, we don't forgive ourselves of things we've done wrong. So often, we're hard on ourselves in a way that can be paralyzing for us. But Jesus forgives us and heals us. And it's like he's saying to us, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. But the key part in this whole event is when Jesus essentially said, I'll prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins. In other words, I want to demonstrate to you that I have the power to heal people and to make them whole. You see, any pious Jew of the time, and there'd have been plenty of them looking on, knew that there was a sacrificial system in which proper repentance and sacrifice came before forgiveness. And there'd been no talk of this at all. God's respecting uh, framework for getting people to be mindful of authority, of guilt, of punishment, of penance had been totally sidestepped in these words, and forgiveness had been pronounced too soon. Jesus crossed the sacred boundary towards sinners and embraced them. And in doing this, 
In setting aside the ancient sacrificial system, he incurred the wrath of those who managed it. Here, Jesus took people beyond their traditional understanding of forgiveness and to a new claim that God's forgiveness and God's love is unconditional. We claim a forgiveness freely and generously given, and we know that in Jesus new beginnings can occur. Beginnings that can lead to healing and to wholeness and to abundant life. We saw that in the casting out of the demons, and we saw that in the healing of the paralyzed man. Jesus had the power to heal, to make people new and to make people whole again 2,000 years ago. And he still has that power now. But there was a fourth group of people in the event that day. A group who didn't want to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They weren't ready for the truth that he brought. And they were the religious people of the day. The priests, the philosophers, the religious elite. The religious zealots who didn't know the power and presence of God in their lives. They've always been scribes of every, every religion. Those people who love their religion, who love their religious book and their religious interpretations more than they love God and more than they love the paralyzed man who sat in front of them. These types of people can still be found in every religion and in every place. And when Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven, his words did not sit well with some of them. Some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. You see, they knew only God can forgive sins. And here's the thing, the scribes were right. Even Jesus must have known that. It's one thing for Jesus to forgive the paralytic if he'd committed a sin against himself, but quite another if he'd committed sins against someone else. The scribes were right. God alone can forgive sins. Yet in an act of incredible power and disregard for structures of the day, Jesus ripped right through their religious truths. And he said, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat and walk? You see, the scribes were right, but they'd left no room for the possibility that he actually was God. He actually was who he said he was. They too limited who they thought Jesus was. The man in the middle of this event wasn't the only one who was paralysed. He was just the most obvious. The teachers of the law were paralysed by their traditions and their rituals, by their love of religion and rules, and that got in the way of them loving God. How often do we let things get in life get between us and God? How often do we let our man-made expectations limit what we allow God to do in our lives? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had Jesus right there with them. They saw the miracles. They heard his teaching. But their misguided ideas were too precious for them to let go of. So the message is simply this. We need to be open to God. We need to be willing to put down our ideas of who he is and be prepared to meet him and allow him to meet with us and to change us. And we need to love God more than our rules and be prepared for his power to work within us and, I dare say, change us. But as amazing as these miracles were, 
None of them was so amazing as the greatest miracle of all, which is the power of Jesus to forgive. To have your slate wiped clean before God, to be fully justified in his sight, to be declared righteous, to be reconciled to God completely and utterly. You see, we know the power that Jesus offers to us all. Whatever situations we find ourselves in, whatever it is that keeps us living the life God wants for us, Jesus can and does change lives and he will change ours if only we'll let him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are powerful and that you still work miracles today. Lord, forgive us when we limit what we think you can do and help us to be open to you in every aspect of our lives. Amen.